Oh, did you see your new round? I did. I saw my new round. I'm pumped. Yeah, Jay was excited. I think we're back on that. I, I think it's seasonal. I think you guys, because you had the same well, issue last year. You no, know, we did some new SOPs with Garden Clean. Okay. And um, what do we, I mean, 90% pass on yeah. the last one. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, like, a, it was like 11, 12 11 out of 99. Yeah. That's 11, 11. Failed. Failed. 11, 11, 90 95. Okay. Oh, 95? I thought it was 99. thought it was 95. Okay, but either way, about a ninety percent, right? Yeah, that's that's great. We were we were really hurting there for a while. Yeah. Um. So no, pumped on that. And yeah, yeah I called Jay immediately after the micro came out. He called like, me first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was excited. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, um. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a make it or break it, right? Yeah. So, um, why don't why don't we just kick it off by you guys introducing yourself and giving us your background. I'm Parker. I am currently the uh, scientific director for NV Can Labs. I'm Guy Bertuzzi. I am director of business development for NV Can Labs and been in the cannabis industry for seven years in Nevada. Right Parker, what's your what's your background? So I actually have been working here at this lab for seven years now, um, and I pretty much started this job right out of college, kind of started at the very bottom as a lab technician and then worked my way up. What's your, what's your current role uh, at, at, at in VCAN Labs? Currently I'm the scientific director. I just, uh, just got promoted actually. Like he, he just recently got ago, promoted yeah. and well-deserved because Parker is one of the most intelligent individuals within the entire lab space because I used to own a magazine. I've worked with all the labs. He's been on since day one and, He's seen more than most labs because turnover within our industry in Nevada has been crazy. Mm -hmm. He is seven years with seven the labs, so he's seen things that no one else has seen in the labs. Nice man. Now I appreciate you guys making the trip out from from uh, Nevada. I know it's a a jaunt to get out here. Oh, it was a fun trip. I never heard of Ontario. Yeah. Um, I want to go into like why I think this this podcast is important to do. When you're coming into cannabis state testing, uh, it's a make it or break it for a lot of these businesses. I mean, you guys are the end all be all, you know, uh, sometimes I mean, I know there's remediation, you know, that, that could happen or, you know, extraction, but for good quality flour and figuring out how these cultivators are going to pass these testing and SOPs and, um, strategies on cleanliness and cleaning strategies. I think it's a really big deal to talk about, you know, kind of what you guys do, your machinery and, you know, kind of feedback or, or advice that you have for the cultivators out there, um, that have to deal with these state regulated, you know, cannabis testing. So much respect, but can you just go over a quick overview of Envy Can Labs, um, what you guys do in Nevada and, and go over some of the testing stuff and. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we basically act as the quality control department for the entire industry of Nevada, really. Um, so obviously everybody grows their products, produces their edibles, their distillates, their shatters, batters, whatever. And then eventually it comes through either our door or one of the other lab's doors, and then that's before it makes it to dispensary shelves. So we're testing for the thing that is the most important, in my opinion, is all the safety testing. We test for microbials, heavy metals, pesticides, um, any residual solvents, things like that, things that could be dangerous to an individual 
who consumes the product. Um, and then we also are testing for the potency and terpenes, which is more like the flavor and the actually whether or not it gets you high, uh, that the consumers more maybe care about day to day. What's, what's like the, the regulation for the state of Nevada when it comes to like batch sizing and, um, pathogens that you're testing for? So we have in Nevada a five pound lot. So every five pounds, we take a 10 gram sample of that for flour and we will run all of our entire suite of tests on those 10 grams for every five pounds. So harvest is what like. Well, you're figuring that five pounds represents seven to 10 plants. Right. So every seven to 10 plants, we are taking a sample and we are doing all of those tests on it. And then if it passes, then obviously you can sell it. If those, if it fails, then those five pounds, you either have to remediate, extract, or... Retest. Retest. Nevada has the strictest. When Nevada released uh, regulations and SOPs for testing and cannabis, they wanted to be the leader in the entire U.S. They We're significantly more strict, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But we're significantly stricter than a lot of other states. Um, which is, we want to make sure it's safe going out. You know, the microbials is a big, big, big part of, uh, the testing. That is, a, like you said, it's a make or break for the clients. Do you think that's really, I mean, practical? Okay. I'm going to be honest on both ends. I've been a consumer for longer than I'd like to admit. I'm in my late forties. Uh, was never tested for most of my life, and I'm still okay. Do I understand people that have respiratory illnesses and that could have some issues with that yeast and mold? Yes, I absolutely get it, but we are making that choice to consume it in the way we want to consume it. Uh, do I believe that testing should happen? Yeah, because the pesticides, the heavy metals, um, aspergill, well, I, I, I completely understand the pesticides and heavy metals aspect, you know, but I, I mean, just on a basis, how does the testing of, you know, mold, yeast and aspergillus compared to a lot of the other the states? So a lot of states have very similar regulations. California actually has some of the least. Most lenient. Yeah, most lenient, um, the least intensive micro testing. Uh, California only requires salmonella, E. coli, and aspergillus testing, whereas in Nevada we do those three plus total yeast and mold plus enterobacter and coliforms, um, and that's for flour. We test total aerobic on edibles as well. And then that's, I wouldn't say common, but there are other states that also have that same amount of different types of organisms that are being tested for. Most of microbial testing is more dangerous for the immunocompromised people for the medical market than anything else. But that being said, it's not that it is not dangerous at all for a regular consumer. The, t- the safety testing a lot of the times is going to be to catch that one odd sample out that does actually have something very dangerous on it. Um, and so it's kind of an abundance of caution more so than what is fully required for safety. Now, when you're talking about CFU counts, do you understand the difference between the CFU? Do you know the difference between the CFU counts compared to California? So from what I could find, California doesn't even use CFU counts in their regulatory testing. 
The only, according to the regulations that I was able to find from California, they only test for a pass-fail, yes, no, is it there or not, for those three, for Salmonella E. coli and for... Um, Aspergillus. Aspergillus, yeah. And yeast and mold. I didn't see no. yeast and mold. Oh, so they don't even test they for yeast They don't even test for yeast and mold. That's a really common... Yeah, we have a lot of clients that come from California yeah. that think it's that easy to pass. We were working, actually, with another larger greenhouse that's in Las Vegas that they have consultants that are in from California and they don't understand why they couldn't pass. But because yeast and mold is prevalent within Nevada, that they had a lot more difficulty getting that bell curve right to start passing. Yeah. So they're they're in for a a rude wake up call when they, when they go to test their cannabis in Nevada. Yeah. What, what about on the pesticide side? So for pesticides, I did pull, I pulled the numbers and everything. California has tests for way more pesticides and has much, I wouldn't say much, has lower limits on bo- uh, across the board pretty much. Uh, California tests for, I believe, 66 different pesticides. Something like 15 of them are completely banned if you find it at all. It's just failed, trashed, you can't even do anything with it. Um, Nevada, we only test for 23. Okay. So, and of those 23, there are five that we have on that list of just like, if you see it, it's over. Everything else has a limit of what is potentially safe to consume. Cause to be completely honest, some pesticides are not that dangerous in some of the quantities that you'll find them at. But then obviously if you then concentrate that and turn it into a distillate, it's going to be, and you're concentrating the THC and the pesticides, which is going to potentially cause issues for a consumer at the end. Now, I'm I'm all about the pesticide testing. You know, I think it's really, really important. And um, having good, clean cannabis that's pesticide-free is vital, you know, for the, for the community. And I will say, in the two years I've been at the lab, and you've been there for six, seven, have we seen many failures for pesticides? Most of the time, pesticide failures are either somebody in the grow made a mistake, where, like, somebody who was spraying, sprayed the wrong room type thing where they sprayed way too late into the process. Or um, people sometimes don't read the labels of like the bug bombs that they throw into their rooms. And so they'll shock find that there was something in the bug bomb that they didn't know was there. And then they'll fail for that. And that's the only one I've seen in the two years, like the bug bombs, the bifenthrin, if I'm correct. Yeah. What do you see on a most common, common failures? What do you seeing be the... For the, I mean, micro is by far the most common thing that fails. Uh, it's yeast and mold and aspergillus would be the top two. Uh, it's probably neck and neck between those two. Yeast, mold, aspergillus. Because mm-hmm. aspergillus is a type of mold, obviously, um, but it is a one and done. So if it's if it's there, it fails. I mean, isn't yeast aspergillus on everything, essentially? Generally speaking, yeah. Aspergillus is pretty ubiquitous. Um, there's a lot of kind of back and forth on whether or not aspergillus testing should be required, whether it's actually really dangerous. The bottom line is that aspergillus is dangerous as an organism if it's allowed to like actually take root in a person. Um, aspergillosis is a very, very serious medical condition. It's mostly going to be affecting people who are already immunocompromised. We're probably breathing in aspergillus right now, having this conversation across from each other. I don't know if it's as necessary to test for aspergillus outside of the medical market as it is for medical patients. Um, that being said, the most common thing that aspergillus makes uh, that is actually dangerous is the mycotoxins that they produce, um, which we also test for separately. 
So I don't know if aspergillus is something that should always be required. What do you mean you test for mycotoxins? Mycotoxins are a specific type of, it's a chemical that is basically a, it's a poison really. It's a byproduct of aspergillus and other types of mold. They're life cycle, basically, as they mm-hmm. eat certain things. That's one of the things that they produce is mycotoxins, M-Y-C-O. So you test for the load on mycotoxins? We do. That's one. Of, that's part of our, te- our pesticide testing because it's just a chemical. It's not a living organism. It's just a, it's a separate chemical that shows up very similarly to, similarly to how pesticides show up. So it's basically tested very similarly to how pesticides are tested for. Nice. It's good to know. It's interesting. And we understand why CCB wants to test aspergillus, but a majority of the industry, including us and most labs, wouldn't mind removing aspergillus from the test list. Because when you look at something like garlic that's in the grocery stores, it is covered from head to toe. And I eat a lot of garlic being an Italian-American. So I eat tons of aspergillus every day. So I understand why our CCB in state of Nevada does it, but we're also for removing it as well. Yeah, so completely removing it off the list. Yeah. Not even testing CFU count. Because I know CFU count, what is it, like 10,000 CFU? For yeast and mold, it's 10,000. Okay. And I I personally, I would be more comfortable with a, a CFU count for aspergillus. Um, but then to do that, we would be, well, I mean, we'd have to run it on on by PCR the same way we do now. It would just be a slightly different method. Yeah. So then instead of a like one and done, as soon as you see it, it's over, there's, you would have a, a CFU count, a level under which it would be safe for consumers. Yeah, I mean, you'd think, you know, if you made regular agriculture do that for food crops, I mean, I don't think there'd be much food in the... On the shelves. Yeah, there wouldn't. Yeah. You know, so having cannabis uh, cultivators do it, I think it's just a little little much, maybe. It, it, it's strict, and but... The state of Nevada did want to be that gold standard, which was very important, but we're learning as we go as well, because it was a new industry seven years ago when we legalized, Mm -hmm. you know, so they're listening and I think they will make changes as we grow. And they already have. Yeah. They have made some changes. Yeah. What, what changes have they made? Um, one of the, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind is there were a couple pesticides that we were testing for that we no longer test for. They removed them from the list because apparently they had never seen them even a single time. In the, I believe it was now it was like three, four years ago, but in the three, four years leading up to that point, they had never seen them before. And they also, that was something that they reduced. They also added on, we, in Nevada, we used to not test concentrates or, um, well, concentrates for pesticides or metals. They were basically using the limits on the flower side to say that if you concentrate this, it's still going to be safe when you make it into a concentrate. But then they went back on that and changed it to where now we test it on everything, which I think is a better practice yeah. anyway. Yeah. Are there any talks of more changes? Oh, yeah. Um, so we actually relatively recently, end of like it was what, like two months ago, we got um, September. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, the state put out a list of new lab testing regs that they basically asked all the labs to kind of give their thoughts on and try to move forward with. Um, and the labs pretty much came together for the first time in the industry's history, which was really nice. And collectively, we like talked about all of them and basically replied to the state and said, like, these are the ones that we think are good. These are the ones that we think are not good. Um, and we're still right now waiting to hear back on from that. But they're constantly, and that's just the most recent thing that has to do with labs. The regulations are changing. I mean, they just put out a new set of regs 
for like a couple minor changes, especially with the consumption lounges coming out like last week, two weeks ago. Yeah. So, and it, it was comforting though, that the CCB is trying to work with the labs on changing those regulations yeah. and they're working hand in hand versus just creating the regulations like how it started and saying, figure it out. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, um, it's not practical if you're running the business, yeah. you know, it's, it's putting guys out of business. Well, being sales with it, there's three things that I lose to price potency or micro. Those are the only three things that clients truly, truly want to see end results on. Yeah. You know, and right now our potency is we're the most accurate potency. I believe within our state, but micro is hit and miss. It's scary. Sometimes it's just the nature of micro. Because it could cost the client millions of dollars in one harvest. Yeah, yeah. With with potency, I mean, what do you what what are you hearing out there? I mean, I heard guys kind of doing some some shady stuff. You know, you sprinkling keef on flour, and how do you guys prevent that from happening? Well, I will tell you, as sales, I have probably the most the staff with the most integrity, which sometimes I'm not going to say is easy for me on the sales side. We we can't say what labs have done. We've heard rumors, and I wouldn't call anyone specifically out, but yeah, we've heard that they sprinkle Keef before they test. They turn the bag upside down before we test. I've never physically seen any of it. Developing better methods, which he could speak more to, of getting better potency or accurate potency. I don't want to say better, but more accurate potency. But what we've heard other people doing, we've never seen it, to be honest with you. What do you what what are some methods that that you know of to I mean, get higher potency levels? So honestly, the thing is, is that it's it's if you're just dishonest, it's really easy to fudge the numbers. Um, it's really easy to, for example, our basic extraction process is we weigh some some of the sample out into a vial, and then we'll add some solvent to it, and then dilute it from there, and then it goes on the instrument. If at any one of those steps you put in more so if if I'm weighing out for example 500 milligrams of something if I instead weigh out 550 and then I just write down 500 there's no way for anybody to know is the reality which it's just dishonesty and like he said I don't think anybody really is doing that on purpose but that is a really really easy way for somebody to just fudge numbers results that way but that would be on the lab side like the lab would have to be dishonest right but on the cultivator side what are you know what are some practices that you've you've heard of that guys are kind of using to trick the test really it's just a couple that he already mentioned um the like the big one that i have heard about all the time is just i mean you keep them in those big garbage bags basically the burping bags and if you just like flip the whole thing over and then sample from the bottom of it then everything all the keef that's gathered up on the bottom is now on the top and that's where samples get pulled from i mean i don't think that one's that terrible i mean if you want to take i mean if if you're going in there sprinkling keef on your shit that that's a bit of a problem yeah right but if you flip the bag upside down put it in another bag i don't know i mean realistically if we don't see anything happen. It's not really like anything that happens before we get there is outside of our purview. Yeah. So as long as it's not causing any failures from anything else, it's, it is what it is. See, the problem is the consumer is dictating the THC levels. Yeah. The Nevada consumer wants 25% Delta nine THC Minimum. at the cheapest rate possible. How, what is it? 20, 25, 25, 25 minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Is That's what they're what looking they're, for. Yeah. 
And if you go back seven years ago, the highest on record was 27.4. And you're seeing these 32s, these 35s, these 40s. But everybody wants that 35, 40. But if they understand. I don't know if they're actually really good. I mean, that's a, that's a, oops, I, a little too much Keith on that one. Yeah, we've <laughs> never seen a 40, I don't think. No, definitely not a 40. Yeah. Um, but if people know how to read the labels, I will say I learned more working for the lab the last two years. I could get a 18% Delta 9 THC with a great tur profile, and it's getting me higher than that 32%. 100%. And, and it's, I think it just comes down to education to yeah. the market. Are you kind of seeing anything start to change on, on that in the state of Nevada or... Not really, unfortunately. Just THC, um, THC, THC, THC. It is really still THC, 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 because I think a big portion of that is because we get good amount of tourists. We get so many tourists that people come in from places that they really they don't have any idea. They're just coming here and they're like, "Oh, weed's legal here. Let's go get some." And then they're like, "I'll oh, give me the the highest you got." And then the bun tenders kind of lean that way, and everything leans that way, and now all of a sudden that's what's in demand. The bun tenders do get educations from the growers, from the production. They talk about it. But when that, you take one dispensary that's like completely tourist driven, they don't have time to educate. We as a lab, we're putting a plan together to go to dispensaries and educate people on terps and cannabinoids and everything like that. It's just getting some of the scientists out in the field at the dispensary to educate has been difficult because we're pretty busy. You know, going back to failures and, and failures in testing and, and passing with, with yeast mold and aspergillus, what are you seeing on indoor facilities compared to like greenhouse compared to like outdoor? Like, are you seeing a higher fail rate come from indoors versus greenhouse or opposite? So it's, I would, I would say it's pretty even. It's really just different problems. So the outdoor and greenhouse grows. We also don't have a lot of those. I will say that as a caveat. Over the last, about we've had three or four greenhouses we test versus everybody else. Probably about four <laughs> or five dozen indoors. Yeah, because yeah. outdoor and greenhouse are not common in in Las Vegas or Nevada in general. But it's 120 degrees. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a terrible place to put a greenhouse. With that caveat, the the pass failure rates are are relatively. They're very similar, to be honest. Um, the greenhouses and outdoor grows have the benefit of being of having the sun, which is a anti, uh, natural antimicrobial agent. UV light kills microbes. That's like you know that when you think about it, but if you don't connect that with the sun, is putting I, off UV. I didn't know that. Um, That's pretty interesting. So indoor lights don't kill micro. No, really. Not necessarily. Okay. Um, so then but the sun does. The sun does because the sun is putting off UV. I mean, it's why you have to put on sunscreen, right? That's like the UV light that kills bacteria, mold, anything else as well, but it's only on the surface. Okay. So anything that's inside is obviously not like being blood touched. blood rot or something like that would right. cause a mic- microbial. Right. But then on the, on the flip side of that, the indoor grows, you end up with, you create these little microclimates. Um, I mean, I know you've walked through several of them, and I'm sure anybody listening probably has their own idea, but you've got fans everywhere. You've got to make sure that the canopy is clean. You've got to make sure you're getting light penetration, all of that fun stuff. Anywhere that you're not getting all of those things, you have microclimates that can potentially just cause yeast and mold growth like wildfire. If you miss even just like one little corner of your room, then it takes root there and it has the potential to spread from there much more easily once it starts. 
So you're not seeing a big difference between, I mean, I know you only have three greenhouse growers. That's including my, my location. And I will say your past failure rate is honestly one of the best greenhouses we have. Yeah. Oh really? Minus. Minus the. Minus my last three months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a, we had a rough three months. I, I know what he's saying that it's similar, but when you're similar in comparing client to client, we'll have a large client that gives us 100 samples that's indoor and a large client that's 100 samples that gives us greenhouse and they fail 80% of it. So when it's apples to apples, yeah. But when you look at two or three of our green, out of the four greenhouse clients that we've had, two of them probably had 80, 90% failure yeah. rate. Wow. Yeah, consistently through the year. 90%. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, if, if the sun is, is uh, helping kill. I'll tell you my opinion, and I'm not the scientist. <laughs> I'm the sales guy, but it's cleanliness. It's yeah. most of them, they're understaffed with the market being down right now. Everybody's understaffed. They don't have enough people to keep up on their day-to-day cleaning. Mm-hmm. And that becomes an issue. It's carrying. I learned cardboard ca- carries tons of aspergillus in it. Cardboard. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in your testing room and you have no storage, there's all cardboard in that testing room and our sample techs are picking it up, there's a chance Aspergillus is going to jump on it. So yeah, that's why I kind of say that they're they're very similar because I don't necessarily think that it is the grow method that is causing the issues. I do think it's more on the The operator. On the operator, on the cleanliness side. Because like you said, we have several clients that are incredible clean greenhouse growers. And then we have some that are very dirty greenhouse growers. And then we have some very clean indoor grows and then some very dirty indoor grows. I do think it's much more on the actual processes being followed by the, followed by the individuals inside the facilities. And I don't think it's the operator's faults per se. Right. It's the understaff. It's just not, and the attention to detail. And SOPs, maybe products that they're using. You know, it, it, you don't need more staff necessarily, but you need the right, I don't know. SOPs to make yeah. sure. You know, things- well, like some of these greenhouses were 100% passing rate two years ago. Yeah. And then they get understaffed. Yep. Okay. Or they have, like, the other thing is that it's sometimes really easy for, like, the people above, for, like, a master grower to come in and say, like, these are the policies and procedures we need to follow. And then getting that level of care and buy-in from the lower employees is is sometimes where the the issue arises. It's not that they don't know what they're doing. It's just that it's really easy to sit there and be like, oh, I don't need to change my gloves because I, I just touched this one thing. It's probably fine when it's not. Yeah. I think a big reason why we are sitting at this table right now having a conversation is because we kind of built a relationship over the challenges that I had. Right. You know, I have a almost 90,000 square foot facility and that we operate, you know, mixed light greenhouse, I'm a big mixed light greenhouse guy, HPS. And you guys came out. I didn't know you offered this service, which is really cool. You guys came out to my facility and you did a bunch of tests. I wasn't there, but can you go over Parker? Did you go? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, I just hold the clipboard. He does all the work. <laughs> so what did, what, what did you do when you came out to my facility in Nevada? So Really, it we did an, what we call an environmental test. So we walk around, we offer the service to walk around and actually kind of go through the facility, go through the process, and basically take swabs and water samples of various things throughout the facility with a special eye of what are things, like the things that I'm looking for are what are things that 
the people who are working here every day may not notice because it's just kind of faded into the background. So there's like several examples of things like that. Like one of the easy ones is we had a client who, who started failing everything coming out of one of their, one of their indoor flower rooms. It turned out that they had, they had just open air from outdoors coming straight in. There was no filter on it, nothing because the person who was supposed to replace it just forgot to. And so it's the little things like that where it's like, Hey, where does that vent go? Whoops. Where, why is that not covered? Or like, why is there a puddle of water here? What is this dripping from the ceiling? Whatever, things like that. So I kind of follow the process through. I try to go from the very beginning, from propagations, from cloning, from mothers, all the way down through. Um, because if there's a contamination in the facility somewhere, it could start as early as that. I wouldn't say it's common. could start from the clone. It could. Or, or mother room. Yeah. That's, I remember, it, and he... He's being humble. He plays Sherlock Holmes when he does it. He starts from the beginning to the end of the entire process, from the mom, the clones, straight through us testing. But one of the things that we noticed were the trays that you had that were pre-soiled yep. already had yeast mold traces the, in them. The iHort trays. Yeah. You, you can be fully transparent on what you found at my facility. You know, I think, I think you know, it, it's important to go over. Why don't you start from, you know, start to finish? What did you swab? Like, how do you do it? What did you find? Um, where could we use improvements? What were we doing well and what, what, were, what were we not doing well? I think just go for it. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I followed the process all the way through. Um, and so, like, the first thing we start in is, like, the propagation where the clones start. Because I also never want to go backwards um, because if there's a problem, if you don't have a problem early and there is a problem later, you don't want to carry it back. So we follow through the actual direction that we're going right in propagation you the they the swabs that we use there they come in just this buffer uh we pretty much just swipe them across like a couple times whatever we're swabbing um and then we keep the buffer and then we end up testing it later we plate it and run astrogillus on it our for our normal testing but the start in propagation the trays were really the big one, the, pre, the pre-soiled the trays. I didn't really expect to find anything in those. That was just kind of a, a thing where any outside things that you purchase pre-made, pre-packaged, is always a good place to check because we have seen soils have been a big thing before. We had one other person who had a cocoa that was riddled with microbes that they had to completely switch manufacturers. But from there... Veg and what what did you find on my clone trays out there? It was I believe it was a lot of yeast and mold in the soil. In the soil, so the actual cubes, the actual cubes, yeah. And that that's one thing that's interesting because um, we were we were passing pretty much ninety eight percent. Yeah, right. Remember, actually, almost a hundred percent. Yeah, we we were like we were we were never failing. Yeah, yeah. But something that we did change is for leaning down operation and saving money, we went from the Grodan one and a half inch cubes to the iHort prefab um, blocks, right. trays, right? And so you're saying that you found a, a substantial amount of yeast and mold right. on that. And s- now can that, can that, from those trays, can it just start growing from there and, and really become a bigger, bigger so, issue from such a small cube, you would think, right? You think that, Hey, this little small cube is really not going to cause me any problem. Right. So two, two answers, the answer to the, the short answer is yes. Um, the two kind of edges of that are number one, it's not necessarily the actual cube itself. It's that if you have a person who touches it, maybe they put 
clone into that one cube and then all of a sudden it's on this hand and then they go touch something else. Well, now it's wherever they touch the second time. And then somebody else comes over and touches that same thing that the person touched and then it carries it further away. It's kind of following that chain that can really, that's why the, the whole facility cleanliness is so important is that it's not necessarily the cubes themselves. It is that that's where it starts. And then from there it gets carried everywhere else. And it starts growing. Right. And then the other side of that is that the cube can, if you're keeping that same cube all the way through the process, because a lot of times you keep, you have that cube, the clones root, and then you basically transfer that into some other media like a rock wool. And then from there you transfer that into the big flower plant pots, whatever that is. However, you're making those transitions. If that, especially if that same cube is sticking around through the entire process, then yes, you will have the same, you will have that same little tiny thing of microbes as, as every time you're transferring it to a bigger location with more food for it to eat, which that's all your nutrients are is food for them too. So as it transfers through, you get more and more growth and bacteria and mold grows exponentially. So it can become a very big problem. Now I know we were uh, working on, cause I'd really like to keep using those IHOR trays. And I know we we're talking about doing some testing with using hypochlorous acid, like cleanse our cleanse product at Athena. Has Jay started those those testing with you yet? Is he not since yet. you not that okay. I know of? No, uh, we just he ran some R and D on other stuff, but not that yet. Okay, I guess that's something that we want to want to test. See what how many mLs of cleanse. You know, I guess we can go over that. What. What kind of products would kill yeast and mold? With hyper, do you are you familiar with hypochlorous acid? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, any really any type of any type of uh, uh, product like that is going like an is oxidizer. Going to work. Yeah, some any sort of oxidizer, of oxidizer. Any sort of uh, like ISO is going to work too. Um, bleach will work. It's really like your normal household cleaner. Uh, hydrogen peroxide. Okay, will work. so like so an oxidizer. Yeah, cool. really anything that can get inside. The biggest key with your your cleaners is something that they didn't know at your facility, and that I've just had the conversation at the other facility we went to yesterday. Don't use ninety nine percent ISO. Don't use like fully concentrated bleach. Make sure that you are diluting them. You want to use like seventy percent ISO would be is the best. You want to use uh, like ten to fifteen percent bleach. Why is that? Um, so microbes will, if they actually detect a hostile environment, which is what effectively you're making for them, they will lock up and not let anything inside them. So if you put 99% ISO on them, it won't necessarily kill the microbes that are present. It won't allow it to penetrate. But if you give it water... Basically, if you dilute the 99% ISO with water down to 70%, same thing with bleach from whatever the concentrated bleach is down to like 10, 15%, then you basically trick them into drinking the poison and then it gets inside the cell and then it will kill it. That's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people really don't know that. Um, that's one of the things that I've been making sure to mention at everywhere that I go is because that's a big thing. They're like, oh, we're using 99%. It's got to be good enough. Um, and it's worse actually than using 70%. Wow. And I will tell you, our former CSO, uh, great, great, great scientist, swore by your cleanse. That's how I learned about Athena and your products. Nikki, yeah. Nikki, she yeah. swore by your cleanse. Yeah. Like all of our clients, she would always recommend it right up to harvest. Yeah, I remember when I called you and uh, I thought I thought you were kind of pulling my chain or something. <laughs> she no. swore, like, yeah, she, she thought a, you were like Walt Disney if you're a Mickey Mouse fan. Yeah, she was a big fan. No, yeah. that was cool. Yeah. It was super cool. 
So let's keep going. So we test the the test the clone trays, find some yeast and mold. That's a concern, right? You know, I think moving forward, let's let's work on a uh, let's do some cleanse test. Maybe we'll try it at 10, 20 mLs per gallon. We'll dunk them, and then maybe we'll send in send in a tray to you. Do you want the whole tray or just a cube? Uh, probably a couple cubes. Okay. Um, so because the other thing is that this th- sometimes what will happen is that for other uses that those cubes are for they don't care as much about microbes. So they don't, it's not necessarily that they'll always be bad, but maybe the particular palette that you got this time was not as clean as other ones. I've mm-hmm. seen that happen before where it was just like a single palette of whatever new material it was, was bad. Okay. But if it's as easy as just adding a, like a quick cleanse, cleanse trend, yeah, yeah, then that would be. Okay. I'll, I'll uh, make sure that Jay gets that over to you yeah, and, for sure. and maybe we'll do like 10 mLs, 20 mLs and 30 mLs. I like hyperchlorous acid because it's not harsh on the plant. Right. If you like use like a parasitic acid, like a zero tol or something, it's just a little harsher on the plant. So I'd really like to see if we can get it done with a hyperchlorous. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let let's move on. Where where are we going next? Where did you test next? So after that was veg straight into veg, which I'm trying to remember. I think was the first greenhouse area. Yeah. So in there we grabbed. I also like to take water samples throughout because one really common thing that happens is you get you get a water, like a biofilm in your water supply somewhere. It's not necessarily like at your RO tank, but if it is, then that's where everything is coming from. So we got a test from there and that was good. We got a test from the water coming out of the emitters for the feeding and that I believe had some growth in it as well, which is pretty common, especially if you had the cubes that you were using, if they were, I mean, if the emitters are sitting there right next to those cubes, then it could very easily have transferred from there. But cleaning the, um, the emitters, when you use them, the feeding lines, whatever, uh, I honestly, I would say not even cleaning them, replacing them would be the best option, but barring that, uh, definitely making sure that you clean them thoroughly between each usage. We also got your water wall, the wet wall. Yeah, the I was going to ask you. Off. Which we all thought that was going to fail. And it didn't. It didn't. It didn't which, fail. It did no. not, which surprised so, the heck out of me. You know, what we do is we use four mLs of reset. So four mLs of uh, reset, which is parasitic acid. Well, we dump uh, uh, four mLs per gallon in our in our res tanks uh, probably about once a week. So you you found no microbes, mm-hmm. no aspergillus, no, not on the walls, dude. That's interesting. Well, we all thought it was going to pop. Yeah, I absolutely Everybody thought did. it was going to because I've seen water yeah. walls like that, and I've swabbed them, and they've come back horrifying. Yeah, um, and it really it, it was clean that one. We're we're pretty uh, sticklers on it, and we got a lot of reset. So um, using it in the wet wall, you know it. Uh, that air is blowing right through your garden, exactly. And we we just we keep it super clean. So that's interesting. Okay, good to know. Your drippers, I know you were talking with the drippers, but it was right over the leak as well. You guys had a minor leak in your roof. You know, I think it was condensation. Oh, was yeah. It the con- yeah. Whatever it was, because that was one of the big things. There was just, there was a puddle on the floor and then you look up and there was like, it was dripping from, from the ceiling of the, where the, like the greenhouse meets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did have aspergillus and yeast and mold in it. Okay. Which makes perfect sense to me. That's one of those things that like anytime, if you have a, a, an enclosed environment, if you're not fully growing outdoors, anytime you have something from outside coming in unhindered or through a channel that you're not, that it's not supposed to, you're almost certainly going to be seeing failures because of that. So that did pop. 
we made it all the way down. I mean, we went through veg. I don't believe there was anything crazy in veg or in the flower rooms. Um, what did you find in my in the drip emitters? You found uh, yeast and mold? Yeast and mold, yeah. Did you find anything in the cocoa? Was the cocoa okay? Did you test it? We did. I don't think there was anything in the cocoa. That's the great. The laptop? Yeah, I was going to say I don't have the... Uh, I don't think I could get the results. I could pull up my laptop while you guys yeah. talk. Yeah, while we talk, you just throw it up. Um, because then I could tell you for sure what everything, what everything was that we had. I don't. I we did test the cocoa. I remember doing it. I don't remember specifically finding anything. I'm trying to remember exactly what the, excuse me, what the problem points of of everything were. I remember the water. The water drip from the ceiling was a big deal. Your outside, your outsides didn't fail because we were doing the outside water samples as well. No, those did. Oh, those did. Yeah, those were the two. There were those were the last things we did. There were the two like in ground water tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he took us out there, he was like, "I know these are going to fail." <laughs> um, yeah. And then they both did. One of them actually didn't have aspergillus though, which I thought was interesting. The other one did. Mm-hmm. None of the none of the area around your construction really had anything which surprised me as well um because that's also usually a a major source of of problems but there wasn't really anything around the door or the walkway there or like just on the other side it didn't there wasn't really anything too crazy did you did you test my drains yes the drains pretty much consistently have all sorts of growth which is not necessarily an indicator of failing samples because what you get in your drains is the culmination of everything coming through your facility ends up in those drains. So if it's in the drains, that does not necessarily mean that it would have come from the plants. It could have come from, I mean, the floor that you're standing on, if somebody kicked it into there and then it just grows because there's now a steady stream of nutrient water coming at it. Mm -hmm. So what, what did you, have you seen drains kind of be a problem with failures in indoor and greenhouse facilities? Not really. Okay. Um, because like I said, it's kind of it's kind of the culmination of everything. Um, and it's not just the culmination of the stuff that you're actively trying to keep clean. It's also, like I said, when you just walk over it and you're kicking stuff into it, mm-hmm. any of that could also be failing. Uh, but the actual drains themselves, I would say that it's a point of interest, I wouldn't say it's a point of concern. Okay. Um, cause it's possible to have perfectly clean drains obviously, but it's not, it's not necessarily going to cause, like, it's not going to be an indicator that you are failing. It's more, we could be doing a little bit better. What'd you find in the flower room? I don't remember. Okay. Right. <laughs> we'll be there in a second. Yeah. But I will say, I love your facility. I will take a ride out with the sample texts. Uh, because it's about a two and a half hour ride. Yeah, it's a two. Yeah, love the little town and everything. But you guys are for an outdoor greenhouse or greenhouse. You guys are really clean, even with having difficulty getting staff because you're so far away from the major cities. Mm-hmm. You guys are spotless, and I love your growers and I love your team. Thanks. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, and your flowers fire. Thanks. Absolutely fire. Good I think my favorite's your Florida Sunrise. Oh, that's the Jungle Boy Cross. Is yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I, I love that strain. Nice. No, it's awesome. You know, what was interesting is um, what you guys found in the in the post-production. Yeah. That that was surprising and eye-opening 
I, I, you know, it's uh, it was a big deal because you could, you know, you did all the work, you've, you've grown it, your grill room's clean, and then you get into post-production and that's where you pick up your yeast mold and aspergillus. That's really common, actually. The, uh, the post-production is almost certainly where, like, the vast majority of failures come from, in my experience, because it's kind of a scenario of you can be super clean through your entire facility, but if you mess up one time, then everything before post-production, you just have one failing sample. But then as soon as you make it to post-production, you make it to your trim room, your dry room, things like that, where you're not necessarily keeping everything as separated as you otherwise would. All it takes is that one failure. If you run that at the beginning of the day and then it blows out dust, spreads all over, spreads all over the entire room, and then everything from that entire day could potentially fail. So that's why I definitely pay extra attention to like trim rooms and uh, really anywhere that we will come into contact with for testing. Um, so like the rooms that we do testing in as well, uh, a lot of times they're not necessarily as clean as they could be or as they're keeping the rest of the facility because they're like, oh, all we're doing in there is testing. But if if everything was clean up until that point and then it falls on it right before we grab it to test it, then it's still there. Like yeah. we can't tell when it got there. So I'll tell you a fun story while he pulls that up though. We actually had a client that was failing for yeast mold and we did their entire facility. We were testing, we swabbed everything. Um, we even did the laundry machine and we realized one of their employees was bringing the laundry home yeah. to the washer dryer. She was getting paid extra to be able to wash it at home, was cleaning it, but nobody washed the laundry bag. So every time they put all the clean clothes back in the laundry bag, all the lab coats and everything were getting covered in oh yeast and mulch. Um, it was just so such a unique situation that no one's thinking of the laundry bag when everything else is being done correctly. You know, I thought that was a fascinating. No, it is, and it's uh, it's eye opening. Yeah, you know, you, something just as minor as that. Yeah, you really got to look at everything. Yeah, it's a. Uh, and, but the microbials, the yeast mold, the aspergillus, it's we live or die by it because clients are like, oh, if I go to another lab, we'll pass. It doesn't work that way. But it is also luck of the draw because, like he said, for five pounds, we're taking 10 grams. Mm-hmm. So two of those plants could be dirty. Seven of the other plants could be clean. It's that 10 grams that we're grabbing is the luck of the draw. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that, like, People will say to us a lot of the time that, oh, when when I retested those samples, it passed at the other lab, and I can tell them that happens to us too. Like if somebody tests at another lab and then we get the retest from them, most of the time, like 95% of the time, we pass those samples too. So it's really, it is just kind of the nature of micro because it's not like a homogenous mixture that you're talking about. You're talking about individual organisms that you're looking for. And if so, if we grab the bad bud, where there's, I mean, we're grabbing 10 grams, like you said. So out of five pounds, if we grab the 10 grams that are dirty and there's 10 grams on the other side of the bag that were clean and mm-hmm. the other lab grabs those, then you're not going to fail. Yeah. Um, so it's an imperfect system, but there's also not really a better way to do it that is cost effective. Because if you test per plant, which would be really the only accurate way to do it, then all of a sudden you're talking about like 50 samples per wouldn't be feasible. harvest. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Um, so I do have your, your results here. It's a little wonky because I don't understand his laptop, but it's a Mac. You're a PC guy. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah. So the emitters, like I said, did have growth. Um, they failed actually for bacteria as well, because that 
most likely that was coming from the the trays, the soil trays. So, so you're thinking that that's that initially started with our clone cubes. Yeah, that would okay. be my assumption. Is because I believe he said that you guys are are you replacing your emitters or were you? No, we clean them. You clean them. Yeah. Um, well, we just we 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 dip them in a uh, you know big tub of uh, parasitic acid. Right. Because um, he mentioned that the ones I believe that I had just gotten were no, they did come out of a plant. It was later that I grabbed some that were not tied into anything. Um, and then you had, let's see, these entire chunk here had yeast and mold and bacteria. So that's 18, 19. The filters. So yeah, your filters and then your, so like the filters that were under your water wall where the water mm-hmm. was actually coming out of, you did have some yeast and mold in there and then your drains all had lots of growth, but like we just talked about. What about um, your scissors, any equipment, tables, you did do some laptops and stuff. I and did I know, do. And some, some of the employees' gloves, I believe, as well. I apologize. I should have printed out. Oh, no. Yeah. Should, no, we, we didn't plan for this. It's yeah. good to go over it, though. It's really important because, just like you said, the uh, the laundry bag. Yeah. Right? The, the, the laundry bag just costs you a hundred grand. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's always the things. And that's what I, what I try to do when I go into these facilities is like, yeah, there's some stuff that I'm always looking for. Like the trim machine is always a, a hotbed. Um, but it's also the things that you're not thinking of, like the laundry bag where it's like, how could it have been the laundry bag that this person was taking back and forth? That's now causing all these issues. Yeah. Like we were recently at a client's uh, cultivation and the same tray that you have to sign in on is the same tray that they put all the cannabis on to move it out for uh, trimming. Uh, and so I'm like, all that. I'm like, you're, he's like, oh, we clean it down. I'm like, but how well are you cleaning it before you move it into a room with? Yeah. Like, are you sure it's perfect? Because if it's not, you're going to be causing issues. Um, so the rest of your, like your table and the racks and everything were pretty clean as far as swabs go. I do remember mentioning there was the whole room that had a bunch of cardboard boxes in it that wasn't like a big, um, it wasn't a place that people go regularly, but it was definitely like a make sure to keep cardboard separate from any flower. Yeah. Cardboard's just bad news. Yeah. Yeah, Cardboard is bad news. Um, because I mean, whatever, so cardboard obviously isn't like spawning aspergillus, but if there, if it ever came into contact with aspergillus, it's still there. Um, so if you then take whatever cardboard, which shipped from who knows where into your facility, then whatever was on it is now in your facility and it is definitely still there living, thriving. But then there was that room. And then the, uh, for a while you guys, I believe had been keeping your failed test lots in the same room that we were doing testing in. Yeah. Um, so that was one of those things I actually, I did grab swabs of that, but I didn't find anything on the swab, but that is, that's still a red flag. So if you, if you're doing, if you have failed lots, ideally you should have two storage rooms, one for clean flour and then one for failed flour. Right. And, and keep them separated. Yeah. Separate the failed lots, like basically as soon as possible, because if you know that they're a problem. Well, while it's testing, you should keep it separate anyway until you have the pass fail. Keep it away from everything else while it's in the testing oh, process. Oh, so have a quarantine for yeah. new harvest. Right. Yeah. So quarantine from new harvest, then once it's approved, then have two other rooms for pass and fail. Yeah. 
that would be ideal. If okay. if you can't do that, because not everybody has the space to have like three two, rooms, three rooms just yeah, for this. Yeah, that's what I mean. Three rooms for storage. Right. Um. Definitely, at least keep some sort of barrier between them. Mm-hmm. Don't keep them just like on the rack next to each other, because then it's like I said. Anytime somebody touches something, it's like with the cubes. Anytime, anytime something gets touched wherever that person touches the second time now it's now it's wherever that was and then if somebody else comes over touches there now it's in the third place Um, and that's kind of just how it propagates throughout do you have any you know standard operating procedures or guidance that that you guys offer at nbcan for cultivators to use i mean like a sheet where it goes over originally parker's just getting into his role as scientific director or former chief scientist officer uh, Nikki, she did work on people give them their IPMs or mm-hmm. SOPs, everything that they were doing, and she would create new IPMs, SOPs, and everything for the client and help develop it. Uh, am I explaining that right? How she? Did- yeah, I mean, it was pretty much just what is your IPM program, and then do you have one at all? First of all, um, yeah. and then beyond that, it's here's the places that we think that you could probably step this up a little bit, do a little bit better. Um, so as of right now, we don't have anything like that. Not currently, but we work, we okay. have not, we have advice. I'll put it that way. We have, do you have like a, at least a, a few page where it goes over? Hey, if you're not looking here, you should. Yeah. It, that would be yeah. cool. Like, cause it really, like we're talking about this and, and you can give like, Hey, if you're, Go back to the laundry bag. If you're washing clothes and you have a laundry bag, you need to clean the laundry bag with the clothes or whatever. And that's where we're at, more at the advice. Like we'll see clients that have their broom, their dustpan and everything in the room with the flower. No, don't do that. Like you're just carrying all the dirt back in. Yeah. We'll tell people to create a separate storage room for those supplies. We will help, you know, but based on their square footage, there's only so much of advice we could give where people could move around things. Um, we do a lot more programs on the production side. We have reversed engineered. Um, I'll let you talk. Yeah, I mean, we we help people with uh, like formulation and stuff like that when their edibles are not working the way that they should be not working, but when they're not coming out at the levels that they're expecting them. Or um, we get some questions about we had somebody who was going to try and start making like a four to one distillate mixture and they wanted to make sure that they were doing their math right. Um, so that's the type of stuff that we can also help with. Okay. Advice overall, I mean, if you if you could just do a general overview of advice for, for cultivators on uh, passing testing, what, what advice would you give? I mean, the biggest couple things are, uh, like the biggest one-stop simple thing to do is get HEPA filters. Um, install HEPA filters throughout your entire facility. That's like the simplest thing. It's a little costly, but you will most likely immediately see an improvement in failure rates due to that just right off the bat. And that's like a fire and forget, like just install them and then you replace them every whatever, three, six months. HEPA filters in what rooms in your, in your post-production? I would put them as much, pretty much anywhere the flower is or the product is coming into contact with, I would have HEPA filters in those rooms. Okay. Um, and like so I said, dry I know, room, post-production yeah, all the way through, not uh, cultivation. If you can, I still would. Okay. Um, it is really like, that's a simple, expensive way to resolve a lot of issues beyond that. It is really just keeping up with cleanliness. It is really getting 
every person to follow through with the entire IPM program that you have, with the entire cleanliness procedures that you have. If somebody ever has to ask the question of should they change their gloves, the answer is always yes. Also, I've seen people working in facilities that don't even use gloves at all. So it's it's like I said, with the bringing things from outside inside, if people are coming out from their car, they just arrived to work for the day and they're walking in wearing street clothes and not changing into something else, that's a problem. If they're not wearing, like wearing booties and gloves and everything like that is something that you want to make sure that you're enforcing and then following that through all the way through to the end of the entire process because it really could be anywhere, could be the source of where your failures are coming from and then obviously it all kind of culminates in the trim room and then it exacerbates it there and fires across everything. But most likely the failures are not coming from the trim room. They're coming from somewhere earlier in the process. Yeah. And we, we will not walk into anyone's cultivation without PP on. Yeah. Like we wear the full fledged body suits, the booties, the masks, and we advise our clients to do that as well. I know it's a pain, but you want to be as clean as possible, especially when you're touching the plant every day. I think there's a balance to it, you know, That's, that's kind of the thing is like, it's, there's what perfect practices would be. And then there's what's feasible and realistic for a normal, like cultivator to actually implement. Um, and so everything that I'm saying is like, oh yeah, you should wear a full bunny suit, glove up, mask up, like get your freaking goggles on. Just like, don't even have any sort of contact with the outside world. Um, but that's definitely not something that most people are going to implement because it's it's not feasible, it's not realistic. Yeah. If all else fails, I believe in remediation. I know that could be somewhat controversial, but if all that fails and you, you need to get better results. I'm and, on the controversial side. I know. Yeah. You know, Cause I mean I, I guess we could go into it. Like what like what are, what a remedi- remediation, you know, what what does a cultivator have options when it comes to failed yeast and mold and aspergillus? So in Nevada, there's right off the bat, you can go, you can request a retest. So what that is, is they will petition the state and basically say, Hey, effectively what they're saying is I think the lab made a mistake. Then a different, the state will assign a different lab and that other lab will come sample the same sample. Nothing's changed about it. And they will run the test again. And then the new test results will be used. And that's when I was mentioning earlier where most of the ones that we get like that, we also end up passing. So that's kind of just a luck of the draw thing. Beyond that, remediation is an option. Um, I believe there are a number of different methods of remediation. There's like you can UV it, you can ozone it, you can X-ray it, you can rad source it. There's several different options. Um, and then once you remediate it, you can send it back to the same lab for testing and hope it passes that time. Yeah, our state, if you do a retest, they pick the lab that you utilize. If you remediate, you could pick the lab you utilize. Yeah. Okay. What's what's the rad source machine? So it's effectively a machine that works on a type of radiation. Um, it is most commonly used in the medical field, actually. They use it for like operating rooms and things like that, so it does work as a sterilizer. We're actually... I'm a big believer in it personally because we've done we've done a pretty good amount of tests on like before and after and we have not found there to be any difference in the before and after. Before and after what? Like uh, usage. So THC, terpenes, yes. potency, like what about what you can't test for? I mean, I mean you're putting 
cannabis, you're putting your flower in this big radiation machine, you know, I'm just not a fan of it. So I understand the, the, basically what I think is that the fear, a lot of it comes from basically the word radiation. It's like, it's a very big, like negative connotation word. The ways that I kind of sidestep that a little bit is really just to say that that's also what most of our food on the grocery store shelves is having happened to it as well. The food um, goes in some kind of machine like that. Yeah. An x-ray machine. Almost everything we're eating goes through similar process. Pretty much across the board. And so a lot of, um, I know one of the biggest reasons that people don't like machines like that, well, twofold. One, it's that it allows, it, people think that it allows cultivators to be, just grow dirty weed and get away with it. And to that, I would say, I don't know very many cultivators who are trying to grow dirty weed. It's really what they should be looking at the remediation format as is really a additional step in order to continue to verify that there are still no microbes in it. Because that's basically what food is. When you're talking about all of the food that's in the grocery store, they have to have a clean process all the way through making of the food. It's not like they're just spitting on it when they're making it. And then at the end of all of those processes, it still goes through that radiation step to make sure that they didn't miss anything, that nothing made it all the way through. And that's the way that I, I think that it is the most beneficial is to kind of like solidify the shelf life and the longevity of the product. And it's controversial within yeah. Vegas right now. We have clients that believe in it fully and believes everything should be remediated before it even hits shelves, that it should just be part of the SOPs. And then we have clients that are purists. And I absolutely understand that. Me on the sales side, I don't want to tell people they have to fail, so I like the remediation part. Yeah. No, I, I you know, I, I disagree. I just, I, I, I can't put my, my weed in a machine and, and let it get blasted by radiation. I, maybe it's just my... And we respect that. Yeah, That's, no, yeah. maybe cursed. it's my lack of education or just my background or whatever, but it's just, you know, I, I'd rather work harder on dipping my clone cubes in some hypochlorous acid so I don't get mold and yeast on my, you know, work, work on it before you have to get there, right? You know, I think really focus in and hone in on good cultivation practices, good post-production practices, right, with your trim room. I mean, that's, that's really eye-opening. And just do things so you don't have to use that machine. You know, but to each his own. I know you like that thing. Uh, but I like it for customer service. I don't yeah. get as many angry calls from the clients that are using the remediate. Like, and I will tell you, there's a, the rad source is what I've seen work. I've seen ozone machines that do not work Dude, at all. Ozone is garbage, yeah. bro. I mean, you want to grow some boofy, you know, <laughs> turpless. Yeah. It destroys the shitty plant. weed. I mean, just use an ozone machine. Yeah. It's going to pull all the smell, everything out of it. It's like, why even, why even you, how are you going to even like sell that shit? Yeah. Like, oh no. We looked, we uh, met right when I started, we met with the group that ozoned. Um, and I wanted to work with them because the person was they were selling ozone machines for remediation. Yeah. I don't want to mention their name, yeah, but, don't, uh, yeah. but I kind of wanted to work with the girl cause she was cute. Uh, but then I learned about ozone machines and then I'm like, oh, I can't push this on my clients. This no. doesn't work. It would ruin my reputation. Yeah, no, for sure. All right, moving into like terpenes and THC. Do you know a lot about terpenes? A decent like, amount, yeah. Do, how many terpenes are you guys testing for right now? So right now we're testing for 20. Nevada requires 10 
for us to test for only on flour. Um, the other types of samples are optional. Most people still opt to get them on like distillates because you have flavored distillates, shatters, things like that. But flour is the only place that it is required to test for terpenes. So we test for 20. Okay. So you test for more than, than what's regulated. Yeah. Is that including the, that is not including, we're trying to add four more, um, to the list. We just got four to six more, four to six more. We just got new uh, instruments, and so we're basically using this time to kind of add to our list because we've had a couple requests for some specific terpenes because they're they were finding them at a different lab, and they're really interested to see if they can kind of maximize these individual specific terpenes. So we're going to add them to our list. It becomes a sales point for that client, the cultivation that has the farsenine or the eucalyptol, because people are still buying high THC, low price, but there are connoisseurs out there that are looking to expand their portfolio of flour, knowing the different strains. So farsenine was something that we learned about. It has similar properties as myrcene, I believe. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, do you know, you know anything about that? Um, I know that I know where it kind of tests at sort of. Um, I don't know anything about the effects. I know that the effects of terpenes on any cannabis are all very anecdotal. It's all based on what individuals have come forward and said because there's just no research about it yet, Yeah, which is what I'm really excited for in the future. But that's kind of a lack of scientific knowledge as of right now. Yeah, I've been uh, hunting for the right guy to do a, a podcast on terpenes. I think, you know, there's a guy, uh, big book, he wrote the big book of Terps. It's an uh, interesting guy, but we'll see uh, if we could do something with him, maybe in Spanibus or something. Nice. Be cool. We're adding, which is interesting, eucalyptol is a terp, and everybody knows eucalyptus, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to add that because the common, the non-common consumer is going to know what eucalyptol is. Is there a certain certain terpenes that you get a lot of demand for in in the market that you that you know of? I wouldn't say demand. It's really just so there's I mean there's the f- like five or six super common ones is like caryophylline, terpinaline, myrcene, limonene are probably like the big four most common ones, but then you also have like pinene and linalool things like that that are the really big ones and those are the ones that sometimes we'll get our clients basically saying that they know that this particular strain is really high in one or the other of these. What I'm more interested in is that the smaller terpenes and also the smaller cannabinoids that we're not necessarily testing for right now, we have no idea what the effects of those are. And when you start talking about like those terpenes that I just mentioned are going to be in, you know, like the five to 10 milligrams per gram range. Um, I'm talking about the ones that are going to be much lower than that. And like the much more like PPM range parts per million. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously most of the medicine that we're working with and things like that, like pharmaceuticals, you work with really, really small amounts of actual chemicals. And so I'm very curious as to see what, cause if you end up having like just 10 milligrams of one of these other terpenes or cannabinoids, what is that actually going to do to you? And in the early stages, though, when we went recreational, there was a demand for myrcene, especially from the senior demographic. Yeah. So there was that demand where you saw mostly indica strains being grown by growers in the first few years of uh, Nevada going legal. And you kind of said that it's kind of come off now or? Yeah, it's more varied. It's a right when we went from medical direct, there was a giant senior market. I believe 65% of our consumers at the time were 55 plus. Oh, okay. You know, so, and tourists, 
tourism wasn't kicking in. We were actually very sustainable on local buys at the time, which was really encouraging. But once tourism kind of kicked off and Planet 13 and the ones that are catering, it kind of skews the numbers in the sense that the bigger picture is a lot more varied. Okay. What what's I know they had some new changes with lounges in Nevada. What what is that about? And are they active now? Uh, they should be opening up any week now. Yeah, um, very Planet soon. Thirteen is opening up their lounge on property. It's supposed to be amazing. And then Thrive is opening theirs, which is right now next to El Dorado Cantina behind Resorts World. They've both been approved. Um, I believe County's just finishing signing off, and they should be open in the next week or two. And nothing's happening in any casinos? No. these no. Um, Yeah, federal has to go. The original laws when they did uh, applications for cannabis, you had to be 1,000 feet away from a school, 1,000 feet away from a casino. But some of that's relaxed based on, because we're city or county, uh, they have relaxed some of those rules because the Thrive dispensary is right across from Resorts World, and it's convenient, and it should be convenient for the tourists. They don't need to go to the suburbs to be able to buy and consume, so it should be convenient for them. Yeah, I think that's going to, wh- whatever that changes, it's going to completely change the Nevada market. I, I think it's going to be unique. I think they have to have an angle, though. I think just going to go smoke and sit at a bar I think you need live entertainment. I think you need to have that Vegas vibe to keep people there to buy. Because I believe it's only single servings. You can't go and buy an eighth. You can't go and buy a half ounce. You could go buy a pre-roll. You could go buy a dab. Oh, really? Single yeah. servings? Yeah. That's going to be difficult. Yeah. And yeah. then there's no uh, alcohols allowed. Yeah. So, which I understand, but... It, you have to find other areas of revenue to make them successful. Something like Planet 13 is a site to be seen. Yeah. You know, but to have old video games or to have a comedian or something, that live entertainment to bring them in as well and keep them there. Yeah. I think the, mar- the market is being held back because not every- you don't want to go off the strip or go out of the casino to go buy cannabis, and yeah. bring, you know. So it's just like this market that's just being held back by not access to casinos. So it'll just take time. I think with federal, it'll go and that'll completely change the landscape in Nevada for sure. Oh, absolutely. Like we are our goal. That's why even with the testing being the gold standard, our goal was to be the Amsterdam of North America, you know, because we are based on tourism. Everybody could come in, go to the shops and that's our goal. And, We've done a good job of trying to get there. Yeah. No, I appreciate you guys uh, making it on and and making the trip out. I know it's uh, I know it was a long journey. So <laughs> it was a fun morning. Yeah. Yeah, you got held up. <laughs> it was fog or something. They just yeah. delayed the whole thing. Yeah, Ontario is below minimums. So yeah, they're like visibility. So we sat on the uh, tarmac for a while. Yeah. He was sleeping. I, I was, slept the whole time. Oh, good for you, man. <laughs> I was talking to clients. Yeah, you're always working. <laughs> so much respect, guys. Um, appreciate all the knowledge. And I think uh, the industry and, and cultivation hopefully gained some knowledge to, to really, I mean, we did this to help them pass, pass testing, you know, in whatever state they're in. Um, so I really hope that, uh, that this helps them. And you know what, maybe uh, let's go in and talk about kind of working on, maybe not an SOP, but just maybe like a one or two, a few page kind of guidance and recommendations of what to 
look for when, when you're trying to pass state regulated testing, I think it'd be good to have something on, on paper that we could share with some of our cultivators. Like, Hey, you know what? Take a look at this, you know, be conscious of this, like really focus on your trim, trim room or post-production area. You're going to want to look at, you know, your AC filters. It's recommended to use HEPA filters. I think all this stuff is, is really important. And, you know, these businesses rely on this information so they can drive success and pay their bills and, you know, keep the lights on. So I think anything that we can do to kind of open their eyes and, and help guide them to success and, and passing testing without using alternative yeah. machines, you know, is, is, is super beneficial because it puts better quality flour and good, clean quality flour into the market. So, and that's what we're all about. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And yeah. we could definitely work on that and yeah, kind absolutely. of the do's and don'ts. Yeah. And what to look for. Yeah. I'd love to work on it with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Definitely like a, like a quick bullet point checklist of just like, here's the things that you might not be thinking about. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. Here's the things that you're probably not thinking about, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be an SOP, just some things to look at. Yeah. I love that. So, all right. Yeah. Thank Appreciate you for having us. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was exciting. No, this was, this was informative. I learned a lot. So Good. we appreciate it. Thanks guys. Right. Thanks. Yeah. See ya.